Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on today's show, we welcome Joe Dunn, executive coach who specializes in guiding CEOs, founders, and leaders in high-growth organizations. Joe and I discuss his journey into coaching and how he transitioned from high-growth startup world into becoming an executive coach for young founders. We dig into some of Joe's coaching strategies when dealing with young leaders and how his coaching style sets him apart from the other CEO coaches out there. We cover how Joe balances emotional and rational responses when coaching young founders who are struggling to find ways to drive company growth and personal development as a leader. Lastly, Joe explains how surfing around the world with his son changes perspective on mentorship, parenthood, and life in general. Now let's jump to the tank for this week's interview with Joe Dunn. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Joe. Happy to be here, Matt. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for inviting me. You know, Joe, you are an executive coach to many great CEOs and founders and technical leaders in especially high growth tech companies. And so you've dug into a lot of the nitty gritty of behind the scenes and what happens at the leadership team. But before we jump into that stuff, I would love it if you can give our audience a brief background on your journey in technology and startups and how you made your way into the coaching world. Sure. Yeah, I'll try and keep it short. It, it took a it, it took a long time actually. So uh, I had a twenty year um, pretty classic startup career. I did computer. Actually, I was in a startup before college. I did computer science in college. I was in a startup after college. I was a pretty good engineer, um, but I pretty quickly discovered I wasn't a super great engineer. I wasn't a one percent engineer. I liked the idea of managing. I, I I just thought the the weirdness of trying to get software done you know, correctly on time was incredibly interesting. And at that time, nobody knew how to do that. It was like brand, it was like a wild idea that you could do that. So I started managing people pretty early, went through a bunch of companies, and that uh, ended up with a company called Macromedia back in the 90s. We went public. And I was on the exec staff of that company for uh, six, seven years. And, and that sort of phase of my life ended in 2000. And I quit. And I thought, great, I'm, I'm done. I had eight or nine years Pulling on threads, I did some writing, I did some surfing, I did a lot of parenting. Uh, decided to get back into the industry 2009, something like that, and had a bit of a sort of random walk, uh, which I won't bore you with the details, but it, it did include doing a augmented reality startup. <laughs> I just For about six months, I thought augmented reality was a good thing. I still think it's a good thing. It's just that time it was, it was very early. Um, anyway, so... Um, at some point, I was having a conversation with a couple of founders about their startup, and they said, "Oh, this sounds like a coaching conversation." And I thought, "I don't know, I don't know what a coaching conversation is, but it's a good conversation, so I'm interested." So I found an acquaintance who knew somebody who, who was a professional coach, and they said they turned me on to the fact that it's a thing, you know, and you get paid for it, and that seemed good. So after thinking about it for a couple of months, I put up a website and I contacted my network which by that time was quite old. I mean, by that time, I'd been out of the industry a long time. And people slowly started showing up and said, oh, you know, so that's good. Well, why don't we try it? And so I tried it, and they tried me. And right from the very beginning, I just I just loved it. I just, uh, I just really enjoyed the fact that it's about people. I enjoyed the fact that I get like a I get like a hit of startup energy from every conversation, but I don't have to deal with anything hard. <laughs> you know, I don't have to deal with bug lists and feature lists and getting stuff out the door. I just get to help people with the, the really interesting stuff, which is how startups help you grow, you know, how they push on your personality, how they push on the things that you, you, you wish it wouldn't push on. Yeah, it's interesting. I love how you didn't set out to be a coach or set out to be a, a mentor for early stage founders or any founder CEOs. It was kind of like you just pulled on a bunch of threads and it took you there. You know, you mentioned something interesting about how you took time 
you know, to be a, a surfing dad and and uh, and a parent. And I can't imagine there was uh, initially when you became a parent many parallels between being a parent and being a CEO, executive coach. But man, oh man, as a young parent myself, I can't believe how many parallels there are, especially in just terms of the duration at which it takes to see changes, obviously. But also there's a lot of things that happen very quickly. Can you give us some examples of what inspired you to transition into coaching young founders and the parallels between parenthood? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. It's kind of uncomfortable how close the parallels are, actually. Um, <laughs> it is, yes. Yeah. Uh, Young founders, I, I it just sort of went that way. So I think it goes like this. Towards the end of my career, my operational career, I did a dot-com. I, I built a dot-com with Inside Macromedia. And the people who were doing that were about 15 years younger than me. So it, 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 that in itself is an interesting story. I sort of wandered around the building and I found this group of people who were 15 years younger than me. And they were like, this web thing is kind of enormous, kind of incredible and we can do all this weird stuff with it. You know? And I was like, I love you guys. That's great. So by the time I became... I started putting my coaching website out. Those people were, you know, founding companies <laughs> or they were investing in companies and stuff. And so I tended to find people that way. And then it's just, those are just the people I like. I just like people finding things to do, founding companies for the first time, making this transition from whatever, being like a Twitter engineer to deciding they're going to have a billion dollar company. You know, I just think it's a fantastic transition. So I've just stuck with it and people keep finding me. Um, I have worked in larger companies. I worked in Airbnb. I worked in uh, LinkedIn. I worked for Pinterest. And, uh, it's a different style of coaching, you know, different issues. And I just enjoy the, I just enjoy the, it's not really chaos, but the, you know, the sort of energy and the growth that happens in the first few rounds of funding and going from 10 people to 500, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's the crazies. It's the crazies. Yeah. And the parenting, yeah, it's scary, right? And so how do you get somebody who doesn't want to do something, doesn't want to do something to do it, right? <laughs> like, that's what founders want to do. Uh, one that comes up a lot is um, I have a boss who's a founder who's very charismatic, and I want to take care of them, but they keep being rude to me. Like, they keep pushing me around. And that's like, okay, so you're enmeshed with this person. And then it turns out that's very like having a... 13 year old at home, right? Where you don't want to tell him how to do hard things, but you have to for his own good, right? And so you need to tell the founder, like, stop, you can't talk to me like that. And you need to tell your 13 year old, like, yeah, no, the PS5 is going off now. And deal with the repercussions afterwards. But yeah. Well, have the courage to have a very direct conversation, but do it in such a way that indicates that you care and that you are not breaking the relationship. And all of those things. Probably the number one issue I deal with is, is people saying, like, oh, I want to fire this person or I want to level this person or I don't think this person's doing a good job and I need to talk to them about it, but I'm going to leave it. And that's, it's just like absolutely universal. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about those because a lot of the things uh, dealing with emerging uh, leaders and, and managers and, and founders is about communication, right? They've, they've got so many amazing ideas in their head, but they're just not experienced enough at articulating them to people around them. So it all starts with communication. You know, as a coach, what strategies do you use to accelerate the growth and learning of these early founders and CEOs when they're dealing with such a fast-paced environment? To some extent, the, the, the environment dictates the speed. I mean, and the way that shows up is there'll just be things will show up that just have to, have to be taken care of. The job of the coach, I think, is to isolate what's happening that's causing any some particular issue to be problematic 
and use that as a sort of lever for personal growth, right? So we'll take a classic, we'll take a classic one, um, hiring, right? So hiring seems everybody needs to hire. Um, it can suddenly get on top of you because you don't have time to do everything. So you need to delegate to somebody, but you don't have anybody to delegate to because you haven't hired, but you need to spend a lot of time on hiring. And so there's a lot there, right? How do you deal with overwhelm? How do you select the people you want to join, which pushes on who you are? How do you set up the process, which pushes pushes on management style and technique? These things show up. And then every time one shows up, it's a case of facing it. And basically with the client saying, like, look, this is in front of you now, right? There's a set of learning here that's going to benefit you in the long term. So let's go through it and let's figure out what the learning is here. And then as you move through it, you'll have something new in your in your locker. You'll, you will have learned something. Another classic one is like, okay, I've got to fire a leader for the first time. I've got to take some or just take somebody off the leadership team for the first time. Okay, let's talk about it. Let's figure out how you're going to do that. What's challenging about it? How to have the conversation and then move through it and then do a, a retro at the end. Now you know how to do that, right? And guess what? You're going to be doing it again at some point. Mm-hmm. It's like my father-in-law always tells me, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? It seems mm-hmm. daunting when you look at the entire thing, but when you break it down to pieces and you go through step-by-step, step, it's a lot easier to consume it um, and deal with it at time and time again, once you've laid it out that groundwork the first time. But maybe you can share like a defining moment from your career that led you to realize the importance of coaching and mentoring on early founders and how that kind of translated into their success. This is not a founder, but it it was a very early experience that I had where I was working with um, a guy who, so his title was head of product and the company was um, doing pretty well. And he was sort of on the exec team, which is to say he went to the exec meetings, but his boss, you know, wouldn't give him a VP title. And he had joined the company very early and just as a person, you know, off Craigslist, actually, he got hired off Craigslist. And so he was faced with, building a product building a product group and he was being faced with hiring people who had stanford mbas you know and they had four years at google and this and that he was like who am i like how can i be vp of product i don't have that background and how can i hire these people and so we went through about a six-week process really of looking at like what's a vp anyway what do you need to do to be a vp what's what's an executive level leader look like and why is it not you like what do you not have? He ended up sort of getting over this chip and getting over this hump, hiring these people, you know, the MBAs and getting the VP title. And he's gone on to have a very successful career. And that was, it was like the first time I'd seen, you know, two or three coaching conversations challenge beliefs that somebody had about themselves and just turn them upside down. And I thought, oh, this is, this is good. <laughs> Can't wait to do that again. Right. When the, the when the person basically says aha to themselves when talking about themselves and looking at themselves <laughs> is, a, is a moment that you cherish and revel in. Yeah. I mean, another another one which is sort of trivial is um, a founder. It's not trivial, sorry, but it, it's it's small, but kind of, but sort of powerful. There was a, there was a founder who was, who was always getting to arguments with his leaders, right? And he had this habit of being black and white in his thinking and in his speech which a lot of engineers have for reasons I don't, I mean, we can try and figure out why, but a lot of people with strong engineering backgrounds like things to be either correct or incorrect, right or wrong, completely successful or a total failure. I kept pointing out to him, 
that he was framing things as, if this doesn't work, we're completely screwed, right? And I'd be like, what happens if it doesn't work? Like, let's, what are all the other things that might happen if this, if this project doesn't actually land on time? And notice that the only way you're thinking about this is it either works or it doesn't. Now, think about the pressure you're putting on the team there, right? Every time you have these conversations that goes like, this has to work or we're screwed, think of the anxiety you're transmitting, the narrowing of the options you're giving your team, all of the different things that you're doing by speaking this way and thinking this way. And when I drew it on the board, you know, I had a big whiteboard, you draw it on the board, it's like this or that. You can't see it on the podcast, but they're way apart. And you lose all of the space in the middle. And, and that, that was one of those sessions where he looked at it and he was like, oh, I do that all the time. And I, I wasn't allowed to say it, but in my head, I was like, yeah, you do that all the time. It's an interesting approach. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of white space in between black and white that a lot of people don't assume as being beneficial to them or building upon for the next outcome because they, they think it all ends there if they don't see the project to a successful completion. That seems to also help transition entrepreneurs to a leadership role to be able to effectively manage their teams. You know, what other unique approaches do you try to imply to help these entrepreneurs graduate into the leadership roles in the, these fast-growing startups? The thing I'm always trying to do with leaders in growing startups is to figure out what the next level of thinking is in the issue that they're dealing with so perhaps it's goal setting so there's or here's here's an example so perhaps they're thinking about who should be on the leadership team okay that's good starting to figure that out so the question is who's going to be on the leadership team in two years who's going to be on the leadership team in three years say you're at 20 million dollars revenue who's going to who do you want on the leadership team when it's 100 million and that pushing that kind of question to have them think of the have them think about their role being three years out and in terms of abstractions rather than right now and in terms of people is a kind of um, template for doing all of this stuff for doing all of the approaches to what they're looking at product quality somebody will decide that they will decide that product quality is something they really want to focus on okay great so Taking it up a couple of levels, what does that mean to the company? What's the company value that product quality is a part of? What is the larger issue that you're trying to solve here? And so you're trying to do that all the time with people in growing companies. You're trying to sort of push them out of what's happening in the next few weeks and what's happening on a specific issue into how does this fit? How does this fit in the culture? How does this fit in the strategy? How does this fit in the vibe that they want to create? So they're aware that they're building a bigger thing all the time. Interesting. You know, you talk about how also you spent a lot of time surfing uh, before parenthood, but you did some surfing with your son. I believe you actually spent a lot of time surfing with your son. You know, how has your experience surfing around the world with your son, you know, changed your views on mentorship and how life experiences changed the trajectory of people's professional lives my son did a certain amount of boogie boarding at ocean beach in san francisco when he was fairly young he's like 10 or 12 and there were several moments where he would take off on a fairly large 
you know, sort of head highway at Ocean Beach and just disappear. And uh, I don't know if you know Ocean Beach, but it's big, right? So this, you know, the kid would, you'd hear this kind of like, and the kid would disappear and then you wouldn't see him for half an hour. The learning there was like, he's going to be okay, um, which I think is kind of important. So you're saying let the let them go on a leash without actually pulling on it too tight, but knowing that you're you're there just enough to save them is kind of like how professional lives also evolve. Like failure is good, yeah, but not enough to kill you. There's a degree of wildness that I've always enjoyed about surfing, and I th- I think without stretching the analogy too far, there's a degree of wildness in in startups, which I just think is um, exhilarating. Maybe that's the lesson that from from all the traveling and stuff that the wildness, you know, the wild the wildness in startups ended up for me pulling me back and going and 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 sort of telling me like, yeah, it's you don't have to surf all the time. There's there's this kind of crazy creativity that happens in startups that's vibrant and exciting, and it's important sometimes to reframe it that way because these things can be terribly tense, right? These things can be the stakes are high, the confrontations can be tough. And it's sort of important to remember why you're doing this. You're you're trying to do this very difficult thing, this crazy thing of getting a bunch of people to build something that hasn't existed before. Yeah. So maybe we can kind of double click on your style of executive coaching and how it differentiates from others. I, I've had executive coaches. We obviously have a lot of our CEOs working with executive coaches like you. You know, everyone has different styles. Some people try to be uh, a therapist. Some people try to be, uh, you know, a professional, like, you know, career progression coach and others just try to make them better people overall in their lives in both personal and professional, whether it be good partners, good siblings, good children, but also good managers at their company. What's your kind of coaching style? Would you say that differentiates you? I like to be very eclectic and I like not to be bound by sort of expectations about what coaching should be. I'm happy to be directive at times, which if you've done much sort of, if you've looked at the world of coaching much is, is generally thought to be not coaching. Like if somebody says, what, what, what should I do in this situation? The coach is never supposed to say, well, I think you should do this. And there are times where I think that's just helpful. Uh, I think times it's, it's, I think at times it's helpful to say, yeah, in this situation, there's a way to do it. And It'll save you time if you do it, and so why don't you try it? You know, exec staff meetings. So when 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 companies get to like fifty people or so, the question arises: Should we have a leadership team? Answer: Yes. Who should be on it? Well, let's go through that. That means some people are not going to be on it that want to be on it. Yes, you're going to have to have difficult conversations. Should we have a leadership meeting? Yes. Should be two hours, ten o'clock Monday morning. Here's an agenda, and so I'm I'm, I'm quite happy to do that, and I'm also quite happy to express opinions about whether something is where something sits in the spectrum of things, right? So sometimes founders find themselves in very difficult situations and it's useful for them to know like, yeah, this person's acting badly. We can go into how to deal with it and why it makes you feel bad and what personal issues are being pushed on. But the person's acting badly and you should know that. So I'm happy to express an opinion and I'm happy to use whatever techniques are appropriate for the person. So some people are quite cerebral. They get a lot of benefit out of, for want of a better phrase, thinking about their thoughts. So cognitive therapies stuff is great, right? So why are you thinking that? What are all the thoughts? How can you balance the thoughts? Some people are great at visualizations. Uh, I love visualization. So 
they're in some situation, you know, should we buy this company or whatever? What's what does it look like? What's the scene from the movie? Are you in a swamp? Are you in a wood? And some people are great at that. You know, I'm a wizard. I'm in a swamp. I've got a laser, whatever. And some people, and so, I, you know, and, and that's great. And you can say like, what color is the laser? And how powerful is it? All of that stuff. And some people are terrible at it. Like sometimes, some people you say like, well, what do you see? And they'll go like, nothing. <laughs> and so, you know, don't so don't do that. Value, values are important. Improv, I did a bunch of improv at one point, and that's important uh, for performance stuff. Uh, what I mean by that is it's interesting for founders to start thinking about themselves as personas because they are. That's the way people in their company see them. They see them as the founder, right? And if you're an engineer, it's weird for you to think of people thinking of you as, oh, that's the founder. But that's the way they think of you. So. You need to have a founder persona. How are you going to be? Having people act as the founder, figure out what their persona is, what personality do they want to inhabit, and then doing some scenes with them. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that for a second, though, because I think a lot of founders, especially young founders, first-time founders, are really struggling right now, given where the markets are and the uncertainty with imposter syndrome, where they came out of the gates flying, you know, great investors, great momentum, great TechCrunch article, but now they're facing the music of like what really it means to be a builder and a, a startup grinder. And a lot of them just buckle, obviously, you know, they buckle under the pressure, but they need to keep this persona, this founder persona, you know, high and mighty. How do you advise young founders who are struggling to balance, obviously, the demands from their board uh, and scaling or for God, I say, getting to profitability while also dealing with the fact that they, you know, may have overpromised too much and they still want to grow personally. How do you balance that? It's a case of looking at the doubt. So the, the another way of describing imposter syndrome is doubt. Imposter syndrome is should I be here? Really? Another version of what you're describing is are we going to make it? I thought we were going to make it. Are we going to make it? What happens if we don't make it? So there are ways of dealing with the doubt. Some of it is thought balancing. So often what happens is people think like, if we don't make the next quarter, then the board's going to fire me. If the board's going to fire me, I'm going to end up not being able to get a job. If I don't get a job, particularly for immigrants, the fear is I'm going to go have to go back home, which is terrifying. Uh, even for people in the States, like I got to San Francisco, I started my company, we were doing great, we have this little office south of market, it's so cool, I get to hang out with these people, all of that could go away, I could be just some guy back at home, you know, or some woman back at home. It's all, it's kind of entertaining and freeing to follow that thought thread, and at each point go, how likely is that really? So, okay, you missed the next quarter, how likely is that? Pretty high, fine. The board's going to fire you. How likely is that? Well, I mean, there are situations and there are situations, but you can look at that. You can say like, well, I have good relationships with these people. I have good relationships with these people. So far, it's been great. Likelihood, I don't know, 5%. All right. Let's say they they do fire you. What's the chances you never get another job in Silicon Valley? Very small. So what's the chances you're actually going to end up back at the hometown, like teaching at the, at the high school? Like It's zero. It, and so that sort of thought balancing is one way of approaching the doubt. 
And the other way of approaching the doubt is to look at what's driving you to do it in the first place. You know, the analogies are all about sort of mountain climbing and journeys and marathons. You're, you know, you're in, you're in mile 16 of the marathon. Am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? I mean, if you keep putting one foot in front of the other, yeah, you are. So there's a kind of sense of looking at what are you going for? How are you going to get there? Yeah, you're going through a flat spot. What are you going to do? Think about the end result. Think about crossing the finishing line. Think about, you know, the moment you do get bored, you do, you do hit the IPO. Yeah, that's going to drive you. Yeah, a lot of people uh, in, in personal lives and professional lives, they all, often race to the finish line right away. And they take themselves to this dark place of like, I don't want to end up there. And realizing like, there's a lot of things that have to go wrong for you to get there. But there's only a few things that have to go right for you to not get there. You know, a lot of young founders, especially with us at Ripple, you know, we're leading pre-seed, pre-revenue, sometimes pre-product companies. You know, these founders are so vulnerable to any type of no or negative energy that we're often just a therapist in the beginning. And what I try to tell them is you've made it to a point already where very few get to work, you know, in startups backed by a venture fund and solve big problems. So why are you looking at the glasses half full just on the start of the journey? You know, you have endless opportunity to build. The best advice I ever tell founders is you're at the early stages of little to lose. You have the least amount to lose at this stage. All the risk is on us as the investors, right? We're the ones who put up the capital. All you have to lose is time for the most part. And that calms them down, I think. I mean, doesn't calm them down because they have the responsibility of our investment. But from their own personal growth, you know, we are essentially paying cash for them to learn and build. Uh, and failure is a part of it, right? We understand that. And once they have that sort of understanding, I think they calm down. But it never goes away, as you know, Joe. I mean, you've worked with so many tech companies. You know, what kind of common leadership traits are you seeing that you find to be part of their success, essential in the success of great leaders in you know tech companies and startups? Combination of things. Storytelling, obviously, and you know this about founders and entrepreneurs. They, they the good ones have this kind of razzle dazzle magic where they enter the room and they start telling their story and you're like, oh, that might work. And it's only later you go, (laughs) I need to look at the spreadsheets. There's this ability to sort of start telling the story of what they're going to do with confidence and with a degree of judgment. I mean, anybody can tell a story. It takes some skill to tell a story that has some foundation in technical possibility and business reality. So the, tell- the storytelling thing is important. Ability to take risks, to be audacious. And by that, I mean to make large moves at the right time in the right way. Some people are too audacious. They're just forever making big moves and their, their companies just fishtail all over the place because they're always changing their mind. Some people like make a strategy and they just stay on the strategy. And even if opportunities are showing up somewhere else or competition is showing up somewhere else they don't change so the good the the ones that are good are able to say like yeah that thing we're doing it's not working anymore we're going to can it we're going to do something else and that's going to cause a bunch of chaos and uh, i will clear up the chaos and i will deal with it and i'll make it work but we have to make this change so that's incredibly important and then it's weird but just management basics you know having respect for getting okrs in place having budgets, having timelines, all of those things, just a sort of management cleanliness really, really helps. 
And a lot of entrepreneurs have some of that, but not a lot. And they, they sort of struggle to find people around them to, to support that part. I think those are the three, I would say. Yeah. I mean, speaking of struggle too, though, struggling, you talk about the early stage founder. I think the biggest thing is delegation, right? I mean, that's a big managerial responsibility. What strategies do you recommend to help founders effectively empower their teams and delegate properly earlier on? Practicing this idea that, that they have to develop a skill of describing something, describing an end state clearly, and describing a set of boundaries within which people can operate to get to that end state. And when I describe it like that, it's incredibly simple. But actually doing it is an art, just practicing it. Every time they think of something that they feel they have to do, that probably fits in somebody else's purview, take the time to describe it in terms of a clear, definable goal and clear, definable boundaries within which that goal is to be achieved. So you're defining, you're, you're ending up with the, the classic thing is the what, but not the how, right? So I want this thing by this date. You're, you have this much money and this much time, these people, but that, I'm not going to tell you how to do it, just continuing to do it. And then there's often some psychological stuff there in terms of letting go. So one of the things that comes up is, oh, I can't do that because I can't trust people. And that's really worth digging into because that's a killer. What does trust mean? You know, what, what is it about this that makes you so scared of having somebody else do it? And often there's a perfectionism there. Often it's, well, they're not going to do as well as I do. And the answer probably is they're not going to do it the same way. And you may not like the way they do it, but they're going to do it. You have to learn this anyway, because, you know, you have 20 people now. You can just barely do everything they do. When you have 40, you're not going to be able to. When you have 100, you're not going to be able to. So you have to do this. You have to learn to let go. You have to learn that people are, people are, people are fallible. People will do things you don't like. Yeah, that's the deal. That's the whole deal. Yeah, I often tell founders like, you know, your time is 100% at, you know, day one. But when you get to 20 employees, like you can't do 100% of everything they're doing. And even if they only do it 20% as good as you would do it when you're dedicating 20% of your time to it, that's going to be better. Maybe they'll do it 50% better than if you were to dedicate 100% of your time, but you can't do 100% of it. You only have 20% to give to them or to that project. And so you have to delegate that way. But I think the problem a lot of founders struggle with is that they made a hire when they chose to delegate that backfired and they've lost total trust in themselves to delegate that same project or task again in the second time around. How do you overcome that? Well, we, we, we sort of have conversations along the lines of the one you just did, which is practically you have to do this. Whatever your discomfort is, we have to find a way around it because there's, you can't grow. You're just not going to be able to grow a company if you don't for want of a better word, trust people and, and delegate things. So there's, there's kind of putting a, it's like burning the boats. There's no way back. You have to learn to do this. Right. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is digging into, I, I mean, the way, the way it often ends up for me is a sort of philosophical conversation about people. What do you think about people? The answer you want to get to, and it can be in five minutes, it can be in several sessions is people are flawed. They're wonderful and creative and energetic and fantastic. And they're flawed. And your job in managing a group of people is to get them is to get that group of flawed chemical beings to work. And in that group, some people will be doing weird stuff. Some people will be flaking out. Some people will not be in the job properly. Your job is to take care of it. Your job is to deal with it. And if you go into that thinking, I, I want to have a hundred people in my company who are all like me, who are all doing a great job, a perfect, a perfect job the way I would do it. It's just never going to happen. 
it's much messier than that. You know, you speak about mindfulness, meditation, and other practices. I think those are all great things. You know, how do you integrate those into your coaching to benefit young entrepreneurs? And how do you encourage young founders to maintain a healthy work-life balance, which is almost impossible at the early stage of building a company when they have such ambitious goals for their startup? Yeah, the mindfulness stuff is, is um, to some extent, a philosophical approach. So there's an underlying habit I try and get clients to adopt, which is to be aware of things and not grasp them too strongly. So that's always there. And then specifically, we use mindfulness for relaxing sometimes. Sometimes people will come to a session, they're just completely jacked up on adrenaline and doing a 10-minute meditation will calm them down. Sometimes I'll just prescribe a meditation practice, particularly for people who are overloaded, who are too busy. The, the, the deliberate practice of 15 minutes of meditation every day is, a, is an excellent way of starting having them start to deal with their, with their sort of overload. And then visualizations. I find visualizations very, very helpful. So if you're going through a difficult path with the company with the growth, sometimes it's useful to have a sort of vacation you can go to in your head just for two minutes. So we'll do a, we'll do a visualization of their favorite place, whether it's the woods or the beach or wherever it is, the mountains. And they can just go there. They go there for two minutes and they come out refreshed. So that's super helpful. It's a trick, but it's a great trick. And it's better than like, you know, gulping another Red Bull or, you know, trying to sleep because you're not going to be able to sleep. So that so so mindfulness mindfulness sort of supports everything. Your your other question was about uh, work life balance. I'm not a huge fan of work life balance when you're doing when you're doing a startup. I think it's it's a I think trying to have that as a goal on top of everything else is just hard. So as long as you're not being unhealthy, I think you're fine. So when when people start saying like oh I can't sleep like I slept two hours last night or I forgot to eat dinner then I'm like okay great now we got to talk. But if they just say, like, I'm tired and I'm working 70-hour weeks, I'm like, yeah, well, if it was easy, <laughs> everybody would do it. That, that may sound callous, but I, it's not intended to be. It's, just, it's a hard thing to do. You know, it's like if you want to be a world-class athlete, you've got to work. Yeah, it's a hard thing to do when everyone else is judging you based on your Instagram profiles, right? And I think that's where a lot of people are like, why can't I uh, either uh, get rich quicker is one thing that they have to overcome. And why can't I do the least amount of work for the most amount of gain <laughs> is, is the other thing I think people just need to throw out of their vocabulary. But there are some misconceptions too that a lot of young founders struggle with when it comes to even just being uh, coached or being mentored. You know, How have you been able to overcome these misconceptions or what are the misconceptions a lot of young founders come to you with about just being coached or mentors that you've had to overcome with? It hasn't happened very much. Uh, I think primarily because by, by by the time I'm talking to people, they've already got through the the barriers of maybe I should talk to somebody, maybe I'll talk to a coach. What do my VC say about coaching? They say it's a good idea. What do my startup buddies say? They say it's a good idea. Okay, I'll look at some. This guy looks interesting. Okay, I'll talk to him. So by the time they talk to me, a lot of filters have filtered out people who are like, I don't think coaching's any good or I don't know what it is. So I don't see that very often. The main the main misconception I get is there's a magic way of doing things that I have that I can tell them or some coach has or some mentor has that will help them out. So one of the questions is, I'm a CEO. You've seen lots of CEOs. What do I need to know that I don't know? 
And the way I ended up writing that down was there's no magic book. I wrote a blog post about this. There's no magic book. If there was a magic book that told you how to be a great CEO, somebody would have written it. And being a, being a, being a CEO would be super easy. And it's not. The, the answer is everybody's making it up. Everybody has their own style. Everybody has their own way of doing it. You get to invent your own way of doing it. And that's part of the joy of it. So I'll help you. I'll give you some advice. We'll work through some issues. But do I have a secret that is going to unlock your progress with a wave of my hand? No, I don't. I'm sorry. You, you mean you don't have a, uh, a billion, a Bill Campbell trillion dollar coach book in your back pocket? I don't. I mean, I could write one, but it still wouldn't help. I mean, that book exists and, you know, that still doesn't help founders. (laughs) Right. And I think, I think what the book did for me when I already had coaches, which it just reinforced the fact that even the greats still need coaches and executive support when they're at that level. Not like there's just a quick formula to fix it, but it reinforces like this isn't something that goes away, but it's something you continue to have to uh, work out on like your brain, your muscle, your communication skills. You continually need to fine tune it and grow with the responsibilities that come with being a leader uh, and, and to strengthen uh, yourself as you become more uh, effective as a leader. Last thing I'll ask you, you know, young founders are driven by passion and determination. You know, how do you ensure that they keep focus on their long-term strategic thinking without being distracted by some of their passions and some things that they're overly obsessed with by staying focused on the task at hand, which you've said before. Often it's a thinking thing. It's a style of thinking, which is very sort of, it's like a ball of threads. You know, they start thinking one thing and that leads to another thing and that leads to another thing and that leads to another thing. And so they're just, they're forever chasing these threads of, of, of thoughts we slow everything way, way, way down uh, and, and try and get people to try and get the client to distill exactly what it is they want to say and say it and don't say anything else. And this is where the improv stuff comes up sometimes. Or I end up being a sort of or, a, or sort of stage director where somebody I'll say like, okay, what, what are the goals for Q4? And they'll go, well, the goals for Q4 are like this, but we could do this. And there's this other thing. And I just had this idea. And I'll be like, no, stop. I'm sorry. <laughs> what are the goals for Q4? It's like working with a film director who says, like, you're not allowed to improvise. You've got a line. You say the line. You think the line. That's it. So that's one way of dealing with it. And the other way of dealing with it is just constantly going back to what are you going to be doing two, three years from now? What are you doing two years from now? What are you doing one year from now? How does what you just told me fit into that structure? Because if it doesn't fit into that structure, we have to talk. No, it, it is, again, like breaking it down. You can have that long-term vision part of your brain turned on at some times, but other times you need to carve out specific times for action. You know, when that, that action button goes off, repeat the line. Like, don't try and veer too far off in the short term, especially when things need to get done. There's a pitfall that happens very frequently where founders will riff on stuff in front of teams. And then they'll be shocked three weeks later when the team shows up and said, we built that thing. And, and they'll be like, no, I, I didn't mean to build it. I, I, I was just, I was just shooting the shit, you know. I uh, love that the old town hall riff uh, that ends up taking over like six weeks of product time. Yeah, or or they drop by, you know, they drop by somebody's office if they have an office, and they'll be like, hey, I just want to talk about this, and then you know they've gone off and hired people and. Yeah. You know, I, I got to ask looking ahead, you know, do you foresee AI coaches in your pocket uh, taking over? Do you foresee people saying, screw this, I don't need you know to be a manager. I can just have 
my AI chatbot manage them on my behalf? You know, what do you think about trends happening in the tech startup space and how are they going to change the way you know, people communicate with each other uh, and the way that CEOs become leaders? The sort of specific question you're asking is, do I think there'll be AI coaches? The answer is yes. I mean, there's a fundamental question there, which is, will there ever be an AI coach that's as good as a good human coach? I think that's undetermined. If you ask most coaches, they'll say, oh, no, you know, there's something we do that is just ineffably human. We have we have some insight. And all, all ChatGPT does is it, it, it shifts through like billions of patterns and finds the pattern that's right. And I'm like, well, that's, I think that's what I'm, I do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> at the moment I do it quicker than ChatGPT, but that's just a processing. So will it be, will it be, will it be chat coaches? Yeah, sure. Will they be good? probably good enough you know they'll they'll be disruptive in the classic way they'll be 80 percent as good as me but they'll cost a hundredth what i cost in terms of trends yeah i mean the ai stuff is obviously just tossing everything up in the air which is super exciting and who knows where it's going to end up i'm much more excited about it than i ever was with the crypto stuff i just found the crypto stuff difficult to understand and not very exciting but the ai stuff i just think like yeah that's once again Everything's up for grabs. You know, to your point about everybody needing coaching, all over the industry right now, there's people very high up in the industry who are like, Jesus, like I made, I built this company, it's worth $3 billion, and all of a sudden, I don't know what I should do because AI is turning the thing upside down. <laughs> I better get a coach. Platform shifts are uh, scary and, and exhilarating at the same time, you know, for sure. Yeah. Well, before we wrap things up, we always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast. I think the Professor Galloway podcasts are great. I think he's a bit arrogant, but he's always got something to say. Why do you give him your brain capacity when he's so wrong so often? He just makes me think. So I'm guessing you're not a fan. (laughs) No, no, I'm not. I'm not a fan, but I, I don't. I can't imagine if he ever actually like put his money where his mouth with how poor he would actually be. Yeah, it's possible. So I feel like he's a he's a he's an art, a couch critic. That's quite possible. I'm a relatively new listener, so I, I find his views entertaining, and I find them you know they they make me think. But that's fair. Fair enough. My guilty secret podcasts are English politics podcasts because I used to I'm originally from England. Yeah, and and last year English politics just blew up in the most spectacular fashion, and the English political journalism set couldn't believe their luck. It was just so stupid and so silly and so bizarre, and it still is. And so they just they just have this sort of jolly satirical flavor to them. So the guard, the guardian, this, the the scripts are writing themselves. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, you had this prime minister get up and basically say, "I'm hey, I'm going to blow the bar, I'm going to blow the fire, I'm going to blow the economy up." <laughs> you know, fantastic. Next is your favorite newsletter or blog? Ben Evans, Bennett Evans. I think he's very smart. Always read it carefully. Makes me think. Old school Silicon Valley guy. Favorite tech gadget? Electric bike. Best technology ever. Specialized uh, specialized electric bike. Especially for the hills in uh, San Francisco. Yes. Favorite new trend? I don't think it's a new trend, but I think I, I really have greatly enjoyed the, the way psychedelics have come back in the last few years. I, I didn't get into them the first time around. And... Uh, Way back when they first started coming up, they were intended to be used for mind expansion and for 
treating mental illness and this kind of stuff. And we've gone through 50 years and they're back and guess what? They treat mental illness. <laughs> it's like, yeah, great. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. hundred percent agree with that one. You know, and I, I love the fact that I can talk to young, I, I, I can, I love the fact that I can talk to young founders. And I'll, I'll say like, what do you do for relaxation? And they'll say, well, you know, take a handful of mushrooms and take two days off, you know, and I'm like, great. Exactly. That's, that's, a, that's the perfect answer. Thank you very much for sharing. Uh, I'll see you on Monday. <laughs> Don't make any um, decisions, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. T- turn off. Exactly. Uh, next is your favorite book? A novel called Possession by um, A.S. Byatt. And I don't know why I keep going back to it. It's just a very romantic, historical love story. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not very intellectual or deep or anything like that, but it's just a tremendously well-told, beautifully well-told story. And this one, I think, I, I mean, coming back to a, a CEO coach, you know, you've probably got a ton of life lessons, especially as a surfer dad as well. But what is one of your favorite life lessons? Yeah, there's, there's way more time than you think. Way, way, way more time than you think. You get to have endless do-overs and take endless paths and try things and just way, way, way more time. And to your point about Instagram and the world we live in, the, the endless message there is you have to do this stuff now, and you just don't. Wow. Very counterintuitive to the instant gratification culture we live in. So thank you for sharing that. And, and appreciate you joining us in the tank today with Joe Dunn, the founding leadership coach for CloudBreak. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot. And hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at MattyBCohen or at TankTalkPodcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time.